there just really doesn't seem to be an effective concrete practice for taking like day-to-day insights and accumulating them, like rolling them up into a snowball of novel ideas. Hello and welcome to MetaMuse. Muse is software for your iPad that helps you with ideation and problem solving. This podcast isn't about Muse the product, it's about Muse the company and the small team behind it. My name's Adam Wiggins. I'm here today with my colleague, Mark McGranigan. Hey, Adam. And a guest today, Andy Matushik. Hello. Thanks for joining us today, Andy. I think you're about as close as there is to a rock star in the Tools for Thought space. That's a really distressing <laughs> statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about why this space is so small a little later on. But for those that might not know you that are listening, maybe you can briefly give us your background. Sure. I have kind of a meandering background. It begins in technology. When I was a kid, I was constantly developing video game engines and kind of just tools for creative people. I, um, With a couple of roommates, I worked on the, the first native Mac OS X graphics app and did that for a bunch of years and then made some open source software for developers. I was always really into tools for others. Went off to Caltech and kind of got introduced to science, serious science and uh, kind of got my, my very pragmatic engineer perspective salted uh, with all that. But unlike all of my peers who, who went off to get a PhD, I, I went off to Apple and got a different kind of, it kind of felt like a, a graduate program of studying at the, the heels of all of these people with like jewelers loops that they were using to, to look at individual pixels of devices. And there, there my work became much less about just programming and much more about kind of the intersection between technology and the design. I, I got myself involved in, in all these projects that it kind of the, the through line was that they they were about what was central to dynamic media uh, as opposed to just pictures on screens. And so things like you know, interactive gestures and like the 3D parallax effect and you know crazy page curls and, and all this stuff. We've talked before about uh, the way that Apple's environment maybe has less of that distinction between design and engineering, or there were a lot of people that sat really on the intersection of those two things and was part of what allowed them to do and continues to allow them to do really innovative things on interface. And, and maybe you're a person that sits in that place as well, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because like from an org chart perspective, there's really heavy boundaries between engineering and design. And like I was on the engineering side of the house, like I sat with the engineers, but uh, for several years, I, I would like spend much of my day sitting in the human interface lab, like next to a designer. And we're, we're just kind of like tossing prototypes back and forth all day. And so it became this kind of mind meld thing where those people could tweak values in the prototypes I built. And you know, I would end up tweaking design elements as I was building prototypes. And it kind of just the titles fell away. But over time, I, I kind of I began to feel that these experiments we were doing with the dynamic medium, I would love to see them applied to things which had more more meaning, more impact in the world. And so I, I got really interested in, in education research. I started writing about that. And uh, the folks at Khan Academy reached out and asked whether I'd like to do that kind of work with them. Um, so I, I joined Khan Academy and, and took along uh, one of my Apple colleagues, Mei Li Ku, who is a, a wonderful designer. And, and together we started this like R&D lab uh, at Khan Academy where we explored all kinds of uh, novel educational environments from that perspective of like trying, trying to look at what the dynamic medium alone can do and trying to make these active learning environments. And I did that for about five years. And um, I started getting uh, a little disillusioned with uh, institutional education. And um, I started getting really interested in the kind of knowledge work that people like you and me do every day, where you're reading information, writing information, creating new things, pursuing uh, novel ideas every day, and, and wondering how we could augment some of that 
so now I have this, this kind of independent research practice where I'm pursuing oddball questions like what comes after the book? Can we make something that like does the job of a book but better? Uh, it's just been sort of a delightful experience. And I think one of the uh, pieces you've written in all your writing is delightful and I certainly recommend everyone uh, read it, but uh, uh, read as much of it as they care to. Uh, the one I'll link to because I think it particularly illustrates maybe the place where you and our team kind of overlap in thinking is the transformational tools for thought article, which both describes sort of your current work around the, the learning and the space repetition, which you can tell us about, uh, but also the kind of the meta elements of how do we develop these kinds of tools in the first place. Yeah, that, that was a project with uh, my wonderful colleague, Michael Nielsen, who's also been investigating the space, which we might label tools for thought. And people have defined this in, in different ways that the, the term stretches back some decades. But uh, I like to think of it as tools or environments which expand what people can think and do. And a, you know, a great example of this is writing. Uh, another great example is numerals. So there, there's a tendency to, to think about, you know, kind of computer implementations of these things. And, and of course, there are instances which are very interesting. Um, I find it very powerful to reach back to you know these, these cultural uh, ancestry tools for thought. Absolutely. Another great example of that is I think Brett Victor has a piece about this, which is essentially the chart, basically charting numbers, you know, on an X, Y axis or, you know, line graph or that sort of thing that we, we take for granted nowadays where it's easy to crank that out in a spreadsheet or whatever. But that was an invention that happened not even all that long ago. It's, you know, a couple hundred years back or something like that. And the, the existence of this new um, tool, or actually, I think as you argue in that piece, medium, you would even call it a medium for thought might even be more accurate, basically allows you to have new ideas or see the world in a different way. So the tools shape the kinds of thoughts you're able to have and the kinds of works that you're able to create. That's right. If all you have is Roman numerals, Roman numerals, uh, then it's very difficult to multiply. Suddenly, if you have Arabic numerals, it becomes quite easy by comparison. And so kind of in the what comes after the book space, one of the things that my colleague Michael and I had been exploring is just this observation that most people seem to forget almost everything that they read. Uh, and sometimes that's that's fine. The thing that really matters in a book is is the way that it kind of changes the way that you view the world. And for many books, that really is the impact that matters. Uh, but for other books, for instance, if you're trying to learn about quantum computation or some advanced technical topic, uh, it really is kind of a problem uh, that, that you forget uh, most of what you read because these topics build on each other uh, as the book continues. And so you end up uh, starting reading a book in, in English, say, and, and then halfway through the chapter, uh, you start to see there's like a, a word of Spanish and and then by the end of the chapter, there's like whole sentences of Spanish and then, then like the whole second chapter is in Spanish and you know, say that you don't know Spanish as a language. You, you, you read this book and you're like, well, I, I thought I was reading an English book. It's like, no, it's actually written in this other language that you have to learn just as you would have to you know, learn vocabulary. Uh, if you were trying to speak a foreign language, you need to like learn the vocabulary, both conceptual and declarative of this domain that you're seeking to enter. Uh, and so and so the experiment has, has kind of been, well, can we make that easier? A project that that paper describes is this textbook called Quantum Country, which tries to make it effortless for readers to remember what they read. Um, which sounds like kind of a crazy thing, but it, it takes advantage of really a fairly well understood idea from cognitive science about how it is that that we form memories it's reasonably well understood. There's sort of a closed set of things that you need to do in order to form a memory reliably. Uh, it's just that like logistically, it's kind of onerous to do those things and it requires a lot of coordination and management. And so most people don't do it or it's kind of difficult to do it. Uh, but it's pretty easy to have a, a computerized system assist these things. 
And so basically, as you're reading this book, every 10 minutes or so of reading, there's this really quick interaction where, you know, say you just read about the definition of a qubit. After a few minutes of reading, there would be this little prompt interface where it's like, hey, so how many dimensions does a qubit have? And you try to remember, like, uh, how many? I, okay, it's two-dimensional. So you, you think to yourself two, and then you reveal the answer, and it's like, oh, yes, it was two. And so you say, cool, like, I remembered that. And then we say, like, okay, so a qubit is really a two-dimensional what space? Like, how do we think about representing this? And say you don't remember that. It's this linear algebra concept. Okay, it's a vector space. That's fine. Like, you reveal it back. You didn't remember that. So your market is like, ah, like, I, I didn't remember that detail. And um, this is already doing something for you because it's kind of signaling like, hey, maybe you weren't quite reading closely enough or just seeing that answer that you missed. Like as you read the next section, if that topic comes up, maybe you're more likely to remember because you were just uh, corrected and you, you saw that correct answer. But somewhat more importantly, 10 or 15 minutes later, when you're looking at this this next set of prompts and you you see kind of the new things from this section, that prompt about the two-dimensional vector spaces that you failed to remember, that one will appear there. And so you'll you'll kind of get another chance. And then once you remember it there, the idea is uh, a few days later, we will send you an email and you'll say like, hey, uh, let's let's remember these things about quantum computing that you were working on. Let, let's work towards long term memory. And you'll you'll open up that review session linked in the email and you'll, you'll kind of do this interaction again, just just a couple seconds per question. It takes about 10 minutes to go through the material. And that five days later will kind of reinforce your memory of that material about as well as the 10 minutes later prompts did. Not not exactly, but but just roughly you get the idea. And then if you remember things after five days, then, you know, maybe you will next practice them after two weeks and after a month, after two months, after four months. And so it initially seems like this kind of onerous thing, like, oh, I'm going to like be working on these like memory flashcards for this thing I'm learning. But because the way human memory works is that it's stabilized in this kind of exponential fashion where you can have successive exposures that are further and further apart. Uh, it only takes a few exposures before a particular idea can be remembered durably for many, many months at a time. And this is uh, space repetition systems you're talking about, um, which I had some exposure to through Anki, which is this little kind of, I don't know, uh, it's definitely a tool for thought, but it is uh, very niche I would say more than a little clunky to use. You have to be really motivated to do it. And so you can use a tool like this to increase your retention or understanding of something you're reading, a science paper, a book, something you you do want to get a deep grasp of, but you got to really work hard at it, right? The tools are very taping it all together yourself in a way that requires pretty big commitment and investment. And one of the things I think is really interesting about uh, the work you're doing is whether you can take that and build it in a way that's fun, relatively low effort by comparison, maybe even you know sleekly designed and just more more enjoyable overall. Yeah, one thing that characterizes, I think, a lot of opportunity in this space is that there are many exciting ideas which have been explored by technologists or by academics, which are promising in some foundational level. The underlying mechanic of Anki is fundamentally the same as the underlying mechanic of quantum country, if you look at it from a certain angle. But there's this core design piece missing that's kind of keeping that idea from really having the transformative impact it could have. By that, I don't mean the fact that Anki is like hideous. I mean, it, it is, and, and it will kind of like turn off basically everybody who looks at it for that reason. But there are deeper issues. To your point, it's really hard to write good prompts, uh, both in the sense that people start by being bad at it. And so they'll write prompts that don't work very well and that are boring and onerous 
to review. And they mostly won't realize that that's what's happening. They'll just think like that's what this is. And then also in the sense that even if you do know how to write prompts well, it's quite taxing. It takes a lot of effort. It's a context switch from the experience of reading. And it's valuable insofar as kind of reflecting on material that you're studying and synthesizing it, distilling it, and turning it into a question it actually does go quite a long way to enforcing your, your understanding of the material. But maybe you're only going to do that for like the most important things in your life. And it's pretty interesting to wonder like, okay, maybe you do that for the top 10% of the stuff that you ever read. But what if it was like, really pretty easy and low effort for you to remember the top 70% of the things that you could read. And you could save that special effort for the stuff that really, really matters. Um, that's kind of what Quantum Country is pursuing. One of the main things it's wondering is, can we make this something that it basically everybody who's reading it and who's serious about the topic can take advantage of and really see the benefit of? I think this thread also reflects one of the challenges in developing new tools for thought, which is you actually need a lot of different skill sets. It's not just yeah. a matter of engineering or computer programming. You need engineering, product, design, writing, marketing, community. Often you need at least all of those things. And I see a lot of people approach the domain as basically pure engineers. And they, they tend to kind of bounce off where their products don't stick because they're missing a lot of those aspects. That's right. And, and I'll add one more, actually, that, that's kind of Michael's and my hobby horse here, which is that you probably also need some kind of domain expertise. So uh, many of the, the projects in this domain, even if they do actually have the design skills and the technical skills involved, as well as some of the other peripheral skills, they'll be doing things like trying to make a tool to do math better or something like that. But no one on the team is a serious mathematician. And so they'll make something that seems really cool and it makes for a really good like product hunt presentation, but no mathematician's really going to use it to do serious work. Maybe it works in an educational perspective, but it, it's fundamentally limited. It's, it's like a toy in some fundamental fashion. And so to that list, I would add, you need some kind of deep domain expertise too. For a product like Muse, maybe that is somewhat diffuse. So anybody working on a product, the domain expertise that's relevant there might be like, you know, the visual design of a product or like doing these kind of conception stages of a product. Well, our domain is thinking. So luckily we have a domain expert on that and that's Mark. Right. Yeah, I feel like a, a sort of secret that we have, we had with the lab and now we have with Muse is this understanding of the creative process and thinking. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it actually comes from the study of how this stuff happened historically. And you mentioned reaching back in history and learning from that, something we've done a lot of. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's just really attractive to build tools. It is built into my DNA. Like I grew up that way. And it's actually a liability for me. Mm. My tendency when I see an opportunity or I see a problem space is like, oh, wow, like I'm going to make a tool to like help with that. And that's like a, a useful tendency. It's a cool tendency. But often I'm not like really solving a burning problem or I'm solving an abstract problem that isn't connected to something that is like concrete and intrinsically meaningful and that like actually is about doing the work. So like the analog in Muse would be if maybe I'd done like one serious creative process that was about like a concrete thing. And then I was like, wow, like I'm really interested in the creative process. Like I'm going to devote, you know, the rest of my days to working on building tools for the creative process, which I like, I'm never really using to do any subsequent serious creative process. Like I'm, I'm doing it in order to make the tool because I'm fascinated by tools. That's a tendency that I have that I have to actively combat. Mm. The other thing that comes with it, if you come into building a tool with the domain knowledge, is that over time you get focused on building the tool and maybe you actually know the domain less well. So there's there's quite a parallel for me personally between uh, Heroku and Muse in that both are some kind of creative process. Heroku is web development, um, which is one kind of <laughs> one kind of creativity, one kind of creation, active creation. With Muse, it's it's thinking and reading and making decisions. 
in both cases, there is a process where a thoughtful professional sits down and they start in one place and they end with a solution or a result or an, or an output. And studying and understanding that process both, it's fun for me to introspect for myself, but then the, the ethnographic research aspect of going out and talking to and in the lab and in the buildup to Muse, we, we talked to hundreds of creative professionals about their process, which was always an interesting thing because, of course, it's this very private and intimate thing. And also, I would say 98% of the time, people are vaguely embarrassed because they feel like it should be better. It's like, oh, my notes are really messy. Or yeah, you know, don't look at my office. It's, you know, things are, I, I should have some, I don't know, some, they have some idealized version of what it would, what it would look like. But the reality, I think, is the creative process is messy. And that was something we, we fed into Muse was sort of embracing that a little bit. And I think it's critical that you all not only experience that ethnographically, but also personally, that you have this deep personal experience of that process. Otherwise, I fear it's too detached. The insight from the last year that I'm most excited about is, is kind of this nugget in the middle of the, the paper you, you referenced, Adam. I call it like the, the parable of the, the Hindu Arabic numerals. I hope you don't mind if, if I kind of recap it here because it, it just seems to bear. Please. It's this observation that if you are the Roman royal accountant and you're just struggling through these tables of numbers and you find it very onerous and it's kind of taxing and it's error prone. Imagine if there was like Roman IDEO and you could go to them <laughs> and say like, hey, please help me like with my accounting process. Please redesign this. You know, IDEO's process is pretty amazing in a lot of ways. They've helped make a, a lot of really powerful products. And they have this process that is really interesting where they go and they, they embed. They will like sit with the accounting department and like interview extensively, as you talked about interviewing people about their creative process and like really try to internalize it. They'll do all this like synthesis and diagramming and they'll come up with words to describe what people are doing. And it, it's all great. But I think there's just no way that Hindu Arabic numerals would be the result of of that process if if what you're starting with is Roman numerals uh, because the transition requires the deep insights of a mathematician and also deep insights of a designer so just for instance place value this notion that like if i have a 6 and it appears in the rightmost spot then it's like a ones digit but if it appears in the second to rightmost spot that 6 is still sixy in certain fundamental ways and you can still perform the same fundamental operations on it like with addition and so on it still works the same but it has this alternate interpretation of being like 6d it's in the tens place that is a profound mathematical insight that depends on deep intuition of like commutativity, the laws of distributivity. Uh, it's not something that somebody just like doing some ethnographic research in the field is going to come up with. Yet simultaneously, it's also not something that most mathematicians are going to come up with. And so it's this great example of how you like you really have to have the same the people on the same team. That is a great example of the domain knowledge. And I wonder if that connects to something I feel like I see the trend of people with design as a skill set. I feel like are more often drawn to what I would call consumer or sort of end user things. So they're more interested in working on social media, you know, let me get a job at Instagram or, or Facebook or something like that. And I wonder if that's because then they only need to be an expert in the design domain. And if they're working on something that's more um, for an end user, that's not really a specific domain, you don't need that knowledge or the things that you need to understand the problem space of Instagram is not deep specialized professional knowledge. It's just being a person with a smartphone that likes to take photos and post them on the internet. They can certainly be a lot more successful in that way. People are sometimes surprised that Apple doesn't really engage in anything that looks like design research. And here I use that word 
to, to kind of mean that the ethnography that you're describing in user interviews, the walls full of sticky notes where you're trying to like describe user behavior and summarize user quotes. Like Apple designers don't really do that, but they're primarily designing products that solve problems in their lives. Like I use email, like let me make this email app a little nicer. And so like they can do that. But I think as soon as you leave that domain, things start getting hard. Like uh, Apple iBooks, there aren't a lot of like really serious readers on the design team. I I think that's part Mm. of why Apple iBooks is not good. The various attempts at social music platforms, that's something that requires like a set of ideas that have been pursued by various products. It requires like, you know, kind of a landscape review, understanding people's like social interactions really deeply. That's also not part of the process. So the Instagram designers, I, I think they are doing something that the Apple designers aren't. They're talking to users a lot about how they feel when they're interacting socially. And that's a piece that, that has always been missing from, from Apple's mm. process. But to your point, they're not this like goal of, of taking and sharing photos. That's something they already like. Well, we're already pretty far into it here, but I feel like I should um, stick to our format, which is introducing the topic. <laughs> what so maybe topic? I'll do that here. And <laughs> Andy, you, you suggested this one, which is uh, environments for idea development, particularly idea development over time. I thought it might be interesting to compare what, what that phrase brings to mind for each of us. Sure. So one of the hobby horses I've been thinking about recently is uh, I've been reading this literature on deliberate practice. Anders Ericsson is maybe the prominent individual there. And there's this this extensive research on the practices of dancers, musicians, athletes who have these very formal and intense preparation and practice structures that stretch from youth into eminence. So a touring international pianist is still working on these like fundamental yeah skills and activities. And I think it's fascinating that by contrast, knowledge workers really don't seem to take their fundamental skills all that seriously insofar as kind of like improving them in a deliberate daily ongoing way. Yeah, I'd be curious to even just enumerate what we think are some of the foundational or some of the core skills for a knowledge worker. I was about to try to do that because I think it actually connects <laughs> to, this, to this phrase. Uh, I'm sure that y'all could add some more, but I think reading effectively is, is one of them. Uh, writing and communicating effectively is one of them. But taking an inkling and developing it over time effectively seems like another just really important idea of creative work. And so that, that's what made me suggest the topic that if I speak to people and ask them like, hey, so, so, you know, this kind of interesting notion comes out of a conversation and you think like it might be worth pursuing, then what? People's answers are, uh, mm. they're not good, you know, and like people do come up with things. They manage to develop ideas in spite of this, but it, it's clear that this is very haphazard and it, it doesn't always feel like haphazard in a good way. People will say things like, well, you know, maybe I write it down in my notebook. You say like, well, and then what? Well, uh, maybe later I'll like flip back through and see it. Like, no, no, you won't. Uh, or, you know, you can like, you can schedule time. You can like put aside time to like think about that idea. And maybe if it's like a really important idea, you, you'll do that, but you won't for like, you know, something cool that comes out of a conversation that seems like it might connect to something later. There just really doesn't seem to be an effective concrete practice for taking like day-to-day insights and accumulating them, like rolling them up into a snowball of novel ideas over time, except insofar as, you know, they kind of happen to accumulate in your awareness. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously connects very well to the to the Muse story. For me, it's become because of this product that I now obviously have been using in the process of our team developing it, because it, for me, represents the place I go to do my deepest thinking. There's almost... Um, not quite a ritual, but let's say when I when I go to make a muse board for something that I feel like is something I need to do a deep dive on, I know I'm really getting into it. That signals mm. it to myself, almost to the point that sometimes I'm it's an idea I'm excited to explore. Exactly what you described, like the team 
is having a conversation, something serendipitously comes up, I think I should really dig, dig in on that. I think there's something there. I put it in my notes to do that. So that can be like a fun, exciting, opening a, a new door, opening a, a fun Pandora's box kind of thing. But it can actually also be the other way around, which is I know it's maybe more of um, something important to insult, to research or understand deeply that maybe has is a problem in, in my personal life or like a government paperwork thing or some other something like that. And I just know, okay, I'm going to really get into it. This is not shrugging it off. This is not quickly jotting down a couple of quick notes in my notebook and moving on. By creating this board, I'm kind of mentally making myself a commitment to follow this rabbit hole as deep as it goes until I feel like I have my head around the problem or I've, or I've solved it, which is sort of an interesting effect, mental effect that, that the product seems to have on me. That's really interesting. Can I ask the and then what? Like so something comes up in a team meeting and so like you add it to the muse board. What's the and then what? How does that idea grow? Yeah. Well, importantly, I, I wouldn't add it straight to Muse from the meeting. I would put it more into my kind of like inbox GTD style, like just stuff. It's the same. It's the same list where I put down, um, you know, we're out of we're out of milk, you know, get more. It's just like yeah. little notes here. Another way I'll think of it sometimes uh, in team meetings is realizing we need kind of an internal memo to pull together diverse mm. thoughts on the topic and like really articulating what the problem is. Um, and really trying to lay it all out so that not just for my own thinking, but so we can all sort of be on the same literal page uh, about something, particularly maybe something that's a, a long time ongoing problem. And there's people that weren't on the team before and they don't have some of the past context. And you want to put it all together. Yeah. So the, then what for me is deciding I want to devote a chunk of time to this. You know, maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's more to really dig in, to really just face whatever this is head on and see where it leads me. And, you know, maybe it's something like an idea for a new product feature, for example, which again, tends to be more on the fun, uh, the fun side of things. And so then, then there's this whole process around, you know, let me assemble prior art and get together some ideas and sketch some things and all this kind of stuff. The output varies, but sometimes there's just a clear insight of like, oh, we should do X. It's a decision basically. And then I will go and take action on that. But other times it's realizing, wow, this is a really much deeper hole than I thought. And, you know, it needs more thought or it needs more whatever. And then maybe I want to, for example, it's a team activity. Maybe I want to bring it back to the team and say, we thought we could, I thought I could think about this briefly, have a solution and then do it. But actually it's a lot deeper than that. What do we want to do? So I think it's, I think it's just like understanding or not quite enlightenment, but getting to this new place of understanding about whatever the thing is. And then that in turn implies a next action. One of the questions I've been exploring in this space is what to do when it's not really possible to make a lot of progress in one session. So talking with people about their practices, one common approach that I hear relates to what I just heard you articulate, and that's that something kind of reaches a threshold of interestingness or apparent importance. And at that point, you're going to like carve out some time and sit down and really think about the thing. And that's cool. And sometimes that is enough. I noticed that for a lot of the most interesting ideas that I explore, one session doesn't often really doesn't yield all that much. In fact, often it, it doesn't necessarily feel like that session really produced a, a significant increment at all. Uh, you're, you're just kind of like manipulating the terms of the equation, so to speak, mm. getting a better handle on it. And so one element that I notice often really seems to be lacking from people's processes, because it's kind of it's hard to orchestrate, is marination. 
where it seems like sometimes what ideas need is just kind of consistently returning to them over time and asking, like, what do I have that's new to say about this difficult question? Okay, I can say a few sentences about it that seem kind of new, like that's interesting, but it's still not something. So I'm going to leave this for two weeks and I'm going to come back and like, what do I have that's new to say about this? And maybe if you do that, you know, six times, something starts to emerge. That seems really difficult to orchestrate. It makes me think of a, a great article called uh, Solitude and Leadership, which basically is describing how you, you do need to carve off this. You basically need to disconnect from the opinions and influence of others in order to have original thoughts. One way that the author talks about it is in that first session, like you describe, at the end, everything that you've come up with or written down is really in a way just the thoughts of others that you're echoing back. And that's fine. That's a starting place. But to truly get to something original or new or potentially breakthrough, you need to push past that. Yes. He claims that he can sense when he's sort of like sort of crossed from the more mundane thinking and into the more, let's use visionary for lack of a better better word, or just original, uh, when the thoughts start to not just be an echo of what he's read or seen or heard someplace else. And that, that always requires multiple sessions. I think this also points to the idea that you can't always expect to sit down in a series of sessions and then kind of one step after another produce an idea all kind of in the forefront of your mind. When we think about thinking and ideas and tools for thought, we have this very conscious perception of it. It's like I'm sitting down, I'm going to come up with something that's better than Roman numerals. At the end of the session, I'll have you know Arabic numerals. I think that's just not how it works. Usually, sometimes you can get away with that. But often it's more of your, like you said, marinating on stuff that's becoming this fodder for your mind. And then in the background, you're having an unconscious process of ideas, connection, forming, inspiration. And then when you come into a later session, you might be better prepared to have a new idea. So I think it's, like you said, it's really important to find ways for the tool to support that marination, chewing, ruminating, going over, rearranging without the expectation that you're going to be explicitly building up your new idea. It's really easy for tools to accidentally build walls for that one of my favorite novel reading tools is this tool liquid text mm. totally fascinating set of interactions for manipulating pdfs excerpts things like that one very interesting design decision is that by default documents are kind of a workspace and so you, you extract excerpts into like this canvas and you can manipulate them but documents are kind of separate from each other in that sense. So you can have a set of insights about a document, uh, but if you're going to have inter-document insights, that'll depend on your memory. Now there's a fix for that, which is that you can create multi-document workspaces. You can say like, well, this is like my thinking about the this problem. And you can kind of like bring several PDFs into it and kind of like make your notes and make your excerpts and whatever. And that's cool because then you can have insights between them. But it still requires this intentionality of saying like, cool, I'm going to like bring that PDF into this workspace and then like the notes and excerpts and whatever, like they live there. But if you're working on several interesting questions and ideas at once, it's not at all clear that you're going to have interactions between those workspaces that are, are necessary. Yeah, liquid, liquid text is great. But I think as a coming back to the uh, environments for idea development, that creating room for serendipity without just total chaos is maybe a subtle and uh, tricky thing. I've thought about ways, by the way, to do this not subtly. One notion I have for an experiment is the idea collider. So you have something like your your notes or your wiki pages, and every morning it just gives you two random pages, and it's like write a third page, which is the synthesis of these two things. Oh, cool! Uh, I'd love for someone to do that experiment. Have you tried it? No, no, it's kind of a, it's an open request for research. So if anyone listening wants to to build it, let us know. That's great. It connects to uh, a set of ideas that I've been exploring for the last year or so. I'll share it. Maybe it'll, that'll generate some more. I've been doing this kind of strange note-taking practice that really came out of trying to solve this problem of like, how do, how can I make marination effective? 
how can I how can I make a process where I can like do something every morning and cause there to be increment on my understanding of some ideas or some problems I'm trying to solve. And so I have something that's kind of like a personal wiki, basically. The technology is not really important. It's more about the practice that's important. And the practice is that I try to write these notes that are densely linked to each other, where each note is about a particular atomic idea. Sometimes a note is a question, like what are the most important design considerations when writing prompts for the mnemonic medium, like quantum country? And sometimes, uh, for instance, the children of that note are declarative statements like spaced repetition memory prompts should focus on one idea. And then that note will kind of accumulate, not just in one session, but over many sessions, all of the things that I have to say about that. And sometimes uh, I'll learn that the title was wrong. It's like, oh, actually, they shouldn't always focus on one idea because sometimes it's really good for you know these memory prompts to like synthesize multiple ideas. And these things kind of evolve over time. A, a term that some have used is, is gardening. Uh, I call these like evergreen notes because they're trying not to be fleeting notes, like notes from a meeting that you'll never really return to, but rather uh, notes that you water and which grow over time. And just to get back to your idea, Mark, one of the practices that I found most rewarding here is this notion of a writing inbox, where when something seems interesting or juicy, I have a place for it to go. And I start my writing most mornings by looking at that writing inbox and, and treating those as a set of provocations or prompts and asking like, which of these things do I feel like writing about this morning? And this way, uh, ideas which seem... Uh, uh, promising even if there's already a lot written about them i can kind of throw them back in the inbox and then it'll like it'll appear for consideration on upcoming mornings but i think that inbox gets even more powerful if you start to introduce fancier orchestration methodologies into it so one possible orchestration methodology is like the one that you just mentioned where like maybe the inbox this morning contains these like pairs of notes uh, so it's going to kind of combinatorically like walk my tree here. But another thing that seems pretty interesting and that, that I've been playing with is this idea that I had this interesting idea in a conversation with someone. I don't really know what to do with it yet. It still feels promising. Like I don't want to lose it, but I also don't really have anything more to say about it right now. So I can like kind of snooze it for a while. And it's like, okay, I can go out of my my writing inbox for a while. Maybe it's familiar from Gmail. And then it'll like come back in a while. But in, in a modification on the snoozing functionality that I've been finding very interesting is the parameterless snooze. Normally, you have to say like come back in a week i think that kind of overhead is unhelpful uh, and is, is often counterproductive and it's better to just say like no not today and to say like well if i've said that 10 times then like probably this should just go away a long time yeah does it like exponentially back off yeah on reminding you nice yeah. <laughs> i think by the way that snoozing or moving things out of view is really important it's actually a big difference than just having a big pile of to-dos because there's a limit to how many things you can have in your head at one time mm -hmm. and often we have new ideas that we want to bring in, but there's no space. And the only way to do that is to actually kick stuff out from your working memory. And something like a snooze can help with that. Muse is really interesting in this regard because the the constraint of the screen as a surface, it encourages users to keep stuff to the the quantity which they can see at a reasonable zoom scale on a screen at a particular time. Is, is, that, is that like part of the design? Yeah, well, certainly constraints are potentially great for creativity. Uh, Post-it notes are one that I reliably come back to both in my own work, but also just as just this kind of very workhorse tool for thought analog world thing. And part of it is you just can only fit so much. You can also use index cards for this as well. Yeah, maybe with a, an index card and a Sharpie and that sort of limited amount that can be on each card. Of course, you can have any number of cards. So yeah, obviously with Muse, you've got the, you've got the expanding boards and you've got the sort of the 3D nesting. But certainly there's, I feel a desire to make what's on the screen at a time kind of fit together as a, a collection of things that feed each other. And when I start to mm. have a section of the board that starts to feel like a, a rabbit trail, then I want to make a sub board that, and so it, it feels like you're going 
deeper down the rabbit hole or something mm. like that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about as kind of Muse relates to this note writing practice I've been doing is the practices of refactoring, revision, polishing, gardening. Uh, something that's been very useful in my practice is kind of having ways to think about writing at different levels of fidelity. So I'll kind of have a place where daily notes go that are quite fleeting and kind of scraps will start there. And when something is titleable, there's some some atomic unit that I can point to and say, like, okay, that's that's a thing. Now it can get its own note and it can be linked to from places. But almost it's almost like the goal over time is for these things to adhere and accrete into larger elements. So a, a note that's a single claim is like not all that useful. It's kind of this dross. But eventually, some number of notes that make a claim will become like a like a theory or like a noun phrase a coinage or something and that larger note that you know contains references to all these constituents it feels like an increment that's meaningful and so the pressure in the system to like over time refine refactor create ever higher order abstractions is very helpful in my writing practice and i'm curious how you think about that i would say that muse supports that but doesn't require it so you can certainly use Muse as a persistent corpus that you're accumulating over time and building up to these pristine and complete notes that are basically publishable. But you can also use it in complement with other tools. So maybe you're doing it in your head, maybe you're writing stuff out in Notion, maybe you're using an authoring tool like Final Cut Pro. It's more flexible and multi-purpose maybe. It's very important. It was a very explicit design decision that boards and cards in general do not require titles. This is, I think, the one of the kind of original sins of, of file systems is in order yes. something to exist, it has to have a name, but a lot of yes. things just aren't named yet. That was one of our design goals with Heroku was that you'd be able to put an application online without giving it a name. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. That's wonderful. Yeah. The original implementation was apps by default were untitled dash some long hash. They have cute names, I recall. This was, I think, one of the one of the really lovely pieces of work my uh, partner there, James Lindenbaum, did, which is what we now call the haiku names, which I think have been mm. fairly widely adopted, which is sort of taking an adjective and a noun that were carefully selected so that they go together and they convey a certain vibe that kind of connected to our brand or whatever. Plus, we eventually had to add some numbers on the end just because there was enough of them. Um, but the idea is something that looks nice. It doesn't look unfinished. It doesn't look like untitled, but it doesn't also require you to figure out wait, do I want to call this my wiki or is it the team wiki or is it team wiki two or is it the, because it's like a, an idea I want to pursue an unfinished thing and I don't quite know what it's going to be yet. I have this hunch that I'm exploring and then, yeah, you get all hung up on the name. Um, and yeah, for, for sure, I see the file system uh, world of things having kind of that same problem where you, because you, names are important when we know that, we sense that. And so if you have to give it a name to even to get started on whatever it is you're creating, that can be a bit of a, a bit of a holdup. Now it's nice. It might be nice to title something or label it later. Muse has labels for that reason. You can obviously rename your Heroku app. There's lots of other examples of that, but being able to just start with, it doesn't have a name. And eventually actually the act of naming it is you're sort of upgrading it from random tidbit of, <laughs> of, of random idea, random tidbit of knowledge may not amount to anything to, okay, this is a thing now. Yeah. I really like this word upgrade. It accesses a design direction or a design space that I'm curious about with this taxonomy of notes, taxonomy of creative work. Taxonomy is too, too rigid a word. It's obviously much more fluid than that. Almost the ceremony of giving something a name, giving something a coinage, and that that feels, that the object feels more complete when it has an, a name. Almost like it wants to, like it wants to have a name. It, it's okay with not having a name, but it's in a happier state when it has a name 
this is a feeling that resonates very strongly with me. When I'm doing a project, a huge milestone is when I come up with a good name. And I don't know why it is. It just it feels so much more real when that happens. In designing tools for thought in general, I think this is a powerful practice to avoid the tyranny of formality by saying like, okay, there are six types of notes. There's the fleeting note. There's the claim note. You're like, that's terrible. <laughs> Screw that. But you can still have an opinion about process. People ask me like, oh, what software do you use for your, your note taking? And it's like totally the wrong question. What matters is kind of the methodology. But having the methodology in mind, I can't readily like communicate it or install it into others' minds except by having them read like thousands of words of notes. And one of the things that Tools for Thought can do is to encourage a particular methodology, not by imposing formal structure, but by implying certain kinds of structure, by making, for instance, objects on a canvas feel somehow more complete when they have a title, you are not imposing the necessity of a title, but you're, you're suggesting that one's work should perhaps culminate in a title. My creative process is always heavily oriented around finding patterns, which is why it's important for me to have a lot of, I guess, raw material and input. Uh, you could call it data, but it might be something like user interviews, or it might be something like looking at some other products in a space that I want to compete with or improve upon or something like that. Um, it might be a series of bug reports, and I'm trying to get to the root of what this is in some kind of complex system. In order to do that, I want to, you know, it's, it's been very difficult to track down, but if I can somehow kind of look at all of it together and extract out what's the, what's the pattern here, that's, that's the place where insights come for me. I, I glean that that's not necessarily the case for everyone, but for me, it is this process. And if I can somehow get everything together, if I can get all the relevant stuff in one place, that's half the battle. Mm. Uh, one last idea on tools for thought before we transition into the meta. Andy, the mnemonic medium can be thought of as a way to optimally position you to remember things. There's this point where if you're at as a learner, you're, you're best positioned to recall vocabulary phrases. It's like just as you're about to forget, basically, you get prompted again. And as that happens more and more, those times become longer. And with a, a system like space repetition, you get this software-based support to help you remember things. I'm curious if you think that technique can be applied to skills. Uh, this is an idea that I'm really intrigued by because, yes, there's a lot of interesting things that are like facts and figures, but there's also a lot of things that are, are skills and abilities. And I wonder if we could apply the same technique to learning how to play chess or how to use a video editing program or something like that. I do think that's possible. I've spent a, a few years experimenting with it now, and, and so is my, my colleague, Michael. And it begins with this observation that it's possible to use spaced repetition memory systems for more than just recall. So the, the typical way to use them is like, okay, what's this term? What's this definition? And that's cool. I mean, that, that's, that's useful. But you can also use them for, for instance, applying an idea. And in fact, in Quantum Country, in the, in the final chapter, we have these questions that look a little bit more like lightweight exercises from a textbook or something like that, that share the property of the recall prompts that you can kind of, you can do them in your head. They're, they're quite rapid. They're, they're semi-fungible. They're lightweight. But they're things like, what would the output of this circuit be? And these are different from the recall prompts in that they're not the same every time you see them. So you're actively not trying to remember the answer, but you're trying to like go through the, the work of producing the answer. You can also write conceptual prompts. Concepts distinguish themselves from declarative knowledge by focusing on uh, how things relate to each other and kind of systems and structures. You can ask questions like, for instance, when I was studying the, the history of philosophy, contrast positivism and existentialism. Now we're making a connection. But in terms of developing a skill, like maybe you, you want to like learn to think in a deontological fashion or something. So you can also write a prompt that says, take a decision that you made this morning 
And it could be as simple as like deciding not to exercise when you normally would have and justify it or condemn it from a deontological perspective. And so this is like a task. And so zooming out, I think spaced repetition becomes most powerful when we think about the items not as flashcards, but as micro tasks. And what the system is doing is batching the transaction costs, which would normally be associated with orchestrating all of these tiny micro tasks that you could use to practice a skill or develop a worldview or self-author in some way and putting them together so that you can say, like, I'm going to do 10 minutes of like my self-betterment session, very broadly construed. And that's going to involve remembering certain chess moves and also so practicing this line of force motion in chess and also reflecting on logical positivism in a certain way uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can extend it even further. So I, I think one element of space repetition is it's kind of helping you with the mechanics of, okay, you commit to spending 10 minutes a day on this problem and we're going to use the software system to make that really productive. You're going to see a lot of cards, for example. But I think another element is basically identifying what you need to get better at. And in the case of memory, it's pretty straightforward. It's like the, the questions that you answered incorrectly last time or something like that are the ones that you need to see now. But in the case of chess, for example, it might be that your endgame is weak or you don't know how to handle attacking knights or something. And that is potentially much harder to identify programmatically. But it seems like it's also within reach. And so I'm curious about systems that both um, help you mechanically, but also in kind of the same system, identify your weaknesses and where you can improve. There's a lengthy history of people trying to solve that particular problem. Going back, I think now almost five decades. For me, the most promising kind of subfield or, or sub-approach it's called intelligent tutoring systems. There are a few systems in the wild that have been commercially successful. The most notable is called Alex, A-L-E-K-S. It's an algebra tutor, which has some fairly clever mechanics for identifying your weak points and then focusing practice time on, on those. I would say that none of these systems has been wildly successful, and the field as a whole has not been wildly successful. I don't fully understand why. I'd, I'd like to spend some time studying that because it seems like a, a somewhat obvious progression uh, once you kind of get into the space repetition space of trying to you know, schedule stuff more efficiently, choose, construct cards. Cards, uh, more effectively, perhaps dynamically. I have read some papers about people in the field's theories about why it hasn't worked very well. And they center on things like the non-regularity of topics. So an intelligent tutoring system on algebra will often share very little in common in its implementation with an intelligent tutoring system on geometry. They can share, you know, some kind of fundamental like modeling the learner primitive type stuff. But the representation of the ontology is first off very difficult to construct and second off very difficult to like systematize and encode in a consistent way across fields. My like personal hunch, and, and again, I haven't read deeply into this, but my hunch is that part of why these systems have not been more effective in wide practice is that they're universally incredibly dreary. They they have this intense feeling of being in a Skinner box like you're a rat in a wheel you are being fed these like morsels of problem and you like swallow and then okay chew like here's another morsel like do this one next and i think it may be possible to like to recuperate the underlying conceptual ideas uh, without the the interaction framework that they all employ yeah very interesting i'll have to check out that literature so if we come to the meta side of how tools for thought get developed we all have some familiarity with the human computer interaction academic field i've dabbled in that in various ways even if none of us are career academics then andy you ran a corporate R&D lab, which is sort of a one commercial approach to mm -hmm. uh, tackling uh, innovation. We, uh, Mark and I, were part of an independent research lab, which was an experiment in that. Uh, and then all of us in various ways have been part of either classic Silicon Valley startups or bigger innovative companies like Apple. 
And despite all of these, I feel like we still don't have the level of attention, funding, and just people who are passionate about, yeah, computers and more broadly information tools that can help us be smarter, more thoughtful, make better decisions, be self-actualize, all of that bicycle for the mind stuff. I'm still trying to figure it out why that is. What's the what's the gap there? This is a ongoing mystery and, and a topic for discovery and discussion, because in my mind, the win condition for my work is not creating a particular tool for thought that that's really powerful, but causing this to be a field. I view it as not a field right now. It's kind of like this proto field. Mm. There's like some people doing stuff. We don't have the Maxwell's equations. We don't have a powerful praxis, uh, but it kind of wants to be a field. I would really like it to be a field. And in order to get there, uh, no one graduates from design school and says, I'm going to go into tools for thought. Well, I mean, so, some people have that intention, but they mostly don't. And they mostly can't. Yeah, can't is a really good point. I, we got a lot of emails hitting and switch with people saying, hey, I'm about to graduate from this design school or I'm working in this startup over here. How can I get into this field? I kind of said, well, what field? I, 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 didn't have, I didn't have anything like an answer for them. I don't think there is a good answer. Almost everybody who's been successful, it's difficult actually to say that anybody's been terribly successful recently in the space, but anybody who's had even moderate success has something weird going on. They're like independently wealthy or they, they have some cash cow that they're like milking in order to let them do this essentially economically unproductive activity uh, or they have like a whole bunch of connections that they're using. I have been helped in my thinking on this recently by reading uh, Nadia Eggball's new book, Making in Public, which analyzes the economics of open source production. And there are some connections between the, the challenges of trying to provision tools for thought work and also the challenges of trying to provision work on open source. They both seem, from an outside view, to be kind of economically unproductive activities Nadia's insight that really helped me and that seems to have some analogs and tools for thought is that it makes sense to separate the way that we think about the economic model of consumption of open source from the economic model of production of open source. So when one consumes open source software, that is a, a non-excludable resource. So the code is just, you know, it's available online. You can't readily charge tolls for it. Uh, it's also non-rivalrous. So you downloading the code doesn't really like make it more costly for me downloading the code. There's very near zero marginal cost. The analog in Tools for Thought is once I like publish that paper on the great idea I had in Muse, this is a non-excludable resource it's out there. And it's also mostly non-rivalrous. You know, so the hundredth person consuming that paper uh, and consuming those ideas, uh, it doesn't really cost any, any different from the thousandth person. But the production uh, looks pretty different. It's a, it's a small cadre of people. It's uh, perhaps excludable. And there are some rivalrous elements. In open source, for instance, Nadia characterizes it as being about attention. The scarce resource for the open source maintainer is their attention. They're being bombarded by these like requests and like well-meaning people trying to contribute code and, and so on and so forth. And it's very draining. And, and this actually makes the resource rivalrous because the 1,000th contributor to the repository doesn't cost zero additionally relative to the 100th contributor. And so one way to think about this that she suggests for open source that I think applies a bit for tools for thought and relates sort of to the strategy that I'm pursuing now is we should think about funding production rather than funding consumption. Normally with media goods, we think about funding consumption. Like you go to the store and you buy the shrink wrapped package of software. And so you're like, you are buying a good, you're buying an artifact. And when we think about commercializing 
or monetizing software. Likewise, we think about the good or the artifact or perhaps the services associated with it in the modern world. Like I'm going to sell support services if I'm Red Hat or something. Modern models might sell cloud services. But a different way to think about all this is to think about kind of verb instead of noun, funding the process of production rather than funding the, the output of the production. This is more common in the arts, somewhat more familiar in the arts. Like if there's a musician you really like, your contribution to buying their albums and whatever, like it's probably not earning them very much money, but increasingly it's a popular thing to like be part of their their fan club or like sponsor them or something like this. And when you do that, when you sponsor the musician, it's not really that you're like buying a particular song or like buying an output, whatever. It's more like, I like what you're doing and I, I, I want you to keep doing it. I recognize that you need resources to keep doing what you're doing. And I want you to have those resources. So like here I am funding your process. And that's roughly a model that I'm exploring for Tools for Thought presently, wherein I'm soliciting funders to cover the production of what are typically public goods. So I'm going to sit here and like do this work and think about spaced repetition systems. And the most prominent, the most useful long-term result of that is going to be an essay, or even if it's instantiated in software. And even if that software is proprietary, it's going to be a set of ideas, interface ideas, which are instantly stealable. And so those are public goods. And it's probably a lost cause to try to monetize either the essay or the like interface ideas in the software. Yeah, file a patent on it, but like that's not going to work. And so instead, maybe we can think about supporting this stuff in terms of uh, recently I've been phrasing it as like funding a grant, like an ongoing grant akin to the way that you would for an academic research lab, which also produces public goods. And it, it sounds to me like you're describing somewhat of a, a patronage model. And we talked about this on a past podcast, both in what's happened with indie games, Steam Early Access and Kickstarter being kind yeah. of the two channels there. Um, and that that's maybe a good example in a lot of ways, even though games are so different. It's the upfront production is where the cost is. You do have to do it upfront. There's several years of development by these, by, you know, whatever size team there is. And when people invest in that, yeah, they're getting some things like access to a community and ability to influence the game and early ability to play an early buggy one that probably isn't very fun. And maybe that feels good for the person or it's fun, but ultimately it's more about wanting to support something they want to see exist in the world. And I see a similar thing happening with the uh, boom in subscription newsletters. Yeah. We'll see you know, whether that's a bubble that will pop or, or something sustainable. I, I hope closer to the latter, but I think it's a similar thing, which is that people think, this is someone, and, and probably that personal connection is part of it. When you get a subscription to, I don't know what, the New York Times, there's a, maybe a similar thing there. You're saying, I want to fund good journalism. There's something more powerful, I think, about that individual creator, whether it's the musician, whether it's the indie game creator, uh, whether it's the, the newsletter author, where you, you feel like you sort of know them as a person and what their work is, and you're really funding them because you believe in them and their worldview resonates. And you're sort of saying, I want... I want more of this in the world. This leads, I think, to a significant challenge. It's comparatively difficult, or it seems comparatively difficult, to fund teams with this model. Like a lot of the advantage does seem to be from this personal connection. You know, if you like go to my Patreon page, it's it's like it's personal in a lot of ways. Like I, I'm, I'm writing, like here's what I'm thinking about, uh, here's what I'm anxious about, and it, you're also perhaps there because of my presence in other places like you heard me on a podcast or, or you you saw me on twitter or whatever if now this is like the team for the something game it's more diffuse and then there's also simply a matter of funding amounts so it seems at this point pretty likely that patreon is, is going to be able to raise an amount of money that can basically support me which is exciting and, and kind of surprising to me but very nice 
assuming that persists, I can continue producing public goods of this kind. But it seems unlikely that it could support a team. I really don't see that happening. So I, I don't quite know what that model is. And one of the things I've been thinking about is that if the main useful long-term output of this kind of tools for thought research is not the specific software that is created, like we don't use Ivan Sutherland's Sketchpad anymore, but rather the the insights, then maybe it's actually okay for some or all of software components of these elements to actually be proprietary. If you're my patron, maybe what that means is that you're funding my work, you're funding my research. So that's going to include essays, which are you know freely available, and perhaps software, which is used to produce the insights, the, those core insights that are captured in those essays. And if you're a patron, like that software is also freely available to you. But otherwise, the software is perhaps proprietary and perhaps generates revenue, which can then support a team. One of the other problems I have here is is that I can't do all the engineering work myself and also do great research. I, I kind of need long term. I need staff. Yeah, I do think the patronage model is really promising. A few comments there. One is I tend to agree that it's harder to fund large teams with the model. I do suspect that small teams are actually possible. Another thought is I think some of the most interesting work in this area leans a lot into community. So again, to draw a somewhat simple example from the gaming world, often if you support these gaming creators at different levels, you get access to like correspondingly elite Discord channels, which seems like it's a small thing, but this is actually a huge human need to like be a part of community and, and to believe in something that is important to you and to participate with your peers. And so I think there's actually a lot of um, kind of community goods that one can provide as an independent creator or as a small team. Uh, another interesting example there is Palladium Magazine, which is doing really interesting work on political economy. And they have uh, different tiers for supporters. And as you become a, a more substantial supporter, you can participate in things like salons or even interact directly with the team. Another idea to address the funding a team problem is I think people don't like to put money into big, mushy pots. Yeah. Like you think about donating to some huge institution, you're like, what's it going to go to? Is it like going to go to some, I don't know, like random building or like cutting the lawn? I don't know. It's not very exciting. Whereas with an individual creator, like I'm funding, you know, this work on the mnemonic medium. That's awesome. And I wonder if you can get a little bit of both by having an institution, but also supporting more targeted funding. So it's almost like you're having a two-sided marketplace for funding as an institution where, okay, these are the five projects that we want to potentially do research on. And you can back individual projects. And once those reach a critical threshold, we'll go ahead and do it. So it feels like you have more agency over what your money is supporting. One other example there is you mentioned the work potentially being proprietary. This is actually well-precedented with keyboards of all things. Folks, you, you got to look up this, this crazy world of custom keyboards. Oh, it's so great. You're talking about the mechanical keyboard. Yeah, they're usually mechanical. And they do things like, you know, someone says, I'm going to make a keyboard. It's going to cost you, I don't know, $500. And if I get 200 orders for them, that's enough money for me to do a production run in China. So I'll do it. I mean, people pay 500 bucks for a keyboard. Maybe they'll pay 50 bucks for you know a better note-taking app or something, right? And I think it's it's very possible. And, and do those people also have patronage? Or, or is this now just a product they're selling? Yeah, I think it's kind of both. So you're yes, you're covering the production costs, but also there's this huge creative and entrepreneurial element where you have to, have to pull together the keyboard, like find the right keycaps and get the right producer in China and, and arrange it all, right? And so you're also paying for that. It's kind of an entrepreneurial activity in a way. And do they like open source the like CAD files and, and stuff? Is there like a public goods component at all in that world? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll link both the uh, mechanical keyboard subreddit, which is just fun to scroll through for the great photos, uh, but also kind of relative to the what people are willing to spend side of it. There's an article by Kevin Linoff, if I'm not mistaken, that is basically an exercise in what could you price this at? And and they actually end up with a price that's over a thousand or something like that. And again, it, it relates to people who are really, really into a very specific hobby. They like the fact that it's this one-time run. 
it feels very authentic. It's just someone in their community. You know, it's it's not a long, ongoing commercial entity. It's just a person in the community that has an idea for a unique thing to make that they want to share with everyone else. To your point, they're willing to put down a lot of money to do that. And yeah, I think there's a it's a very different kind of calculation when you think I'm supporting something I believe in with a community I want to be a part of is a different, very different kind of transaction than I'm purchasing a product. I'm going to you know, shop on whatever comparison sites to get the lowest price I can. I'll never, ever meet or even have any idea who was behind making this product in the first place. It's very transactional, mechanical. Just give me the cheapest, simplest thing that will solve my problem so I can move on with my life. Another related problem seems to be the rivals to working on this kind of work have gotten more appealing. And this is kind of a different angle on your point about Instagram. Mm. When you look at Park, it's not so much that people there got paid a huge amount. Actually, the the total budget for the the projects that produce personal computing uh, was not that large. But relative to the rivals, uh, relative to the universities that essentially would have been the employers for that staff, Park was offering more than anybody. And so they were able to assemble basically all the really great computer scientists that existed uh, in that period, it's a bit of an overstatement, but they, they got a huge portion of them. Uh, whereas now this work is competing with you know fairly lucrative uh, jobs in the tech industry, and, and in more than one way. So like, yes, it's true if you're young and you you know go work for Instagram, you'll maybe make a quarter million dollars a year or more. But also in this kind of uncapped upside way. So if you are the kind of person who's entrepreneurial and agentic enough to pursue this kind of original technological work, you could probably be working on a startup and you could be getting uncapped upside. Whereas it seems fairly difficult to uh, pursue a course of action that could yield uncapped upside in the tools for thought space, nominally speaking, uh, because of the kind of public goods elements. Like the the hardest thing that you do will be to come up with the, the element that is novel, unique, and immediately stealable. And like, yes, you can start a startup around the you know the, the kind of the, the software around that, but uh, you feel like you've shot yourself in the foot a little bit. I certainly think there's a lot of truth to that. I actually just want to jump back to the absolute amounts and comment that I think that the amount of money you need to fund really interesting projects in this space is, in the scheme of things, very small. It's going to be a fair amount to any individual person or any normal individual person, but just the absolute amount in terms of what we spend on random funded startups or what our various levels of government spend is just quite small. That that makes me optimistic that there's a way to make this work. Um, on the opportunity cost thing, I think that cuts both ways. Like, yes, it's the case that people can go to the Googles and the Facebooks and earn a lot of money. But it's, we've also seen with the lab that people really value doing this rewarding, interesting, unique work. And it's accessible to a broader set of people because the lab is remote, because we have a, a broader hiring funnel and so on. I also think there's a time and a dynamic element here where you don't need to spend your whole career doing research. Actually, one of the ideas behind the lab, use the spin out and kind of the whole group there is that we expect people to rotate over time. Mm. So it's not just, you're not just a career researcher or a career entrepreneur. You actually get a lot of dynamism from going back and forth. You get different benefits in each world. And then actually going all the way back to our conversation about full-time toolmakers versus practitioners, you help solve that problem. Yeah. If you spend maybe four or eight years in one domain and then you switch over and you get that hybridization. I'll fill in that I think the funding it through commercial products, where you said the paying for the, for the result rather than the process Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of paying for the output of the artifact rather than paying for the production of it. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, we're pursuing the paying for the artifact path with 
uh, Muse that were were selling this product commercially. If you want, well, kind of, but like it's subsequent to the paying for the production element of Ink and Switch. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, I almost wonder if there's a progression there a little bit, which is Ink and Switch was very much just a small amount of money, grant money that was people that want you know some people that wanted to see this thing, see a certain kind of research done in the world, and very much public goods. We published everything, we open sourced as much as we could. That was the full point of that. And then the spin-out commercial entity, now we're in a state where probably we're closer to that kind of patronage Kickstarter level, which is, you know, I think a lot of the people that purchase the product now, they're thinking it's less about does the exact feature set that exists today, you know, how does, is that exactly what I want or is that, that you know, worth the price? And more that they're thinking, I believe this team over the next period of time that my subscription covers is going to make great things and is going to make this product even better into something that fits into my workflow, into my life, enhances mm. things for me, enhances mm. things for others. And you can imagine fast forwarding a few years when the product is much more complete, uh, that at that point, maybe it does come more transactional. No one cares about funding the the team or the long term thing. It's just more about now it's a good product. It's very full featured and has been developed over a long period of time. And so they're going to spend money the, the price they pay is is much more of a transaction to just get this thing that does solves an immediate problem for them. And they're not worried about the future or the team behind it or the community element. So you can see that as sort of a three-stage progression. Uh, at least I hope or imagine that could happen here. And I could also imagine it happening with with other things, including something like the mnemonic medium or other, uh, other research work that I've seen in, in process. But the making that transition step to step to step, that I think is another place where Mark and I talked about that in our HCI episode. That that I think is another weak point in the the field, if we can if we can call it that. Totally, I think that progression is is likely to happen in my work. And one of the things that seems to create the weak points and is likely to create them in my work is that it's not always the same people who want to be working on these these different things. That's both a weakness and a strength. Maybe I don't feel like doing the production maintenance of a commercial piece of software. Like that. That's just not what gives me joy day to day. But there's like a lot of people who really like just like churning through task lists and they love like the feeling of like check, 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 check. And those people will be like really well suited to be on the engineering team for, you know, long term. Or- I'll note you even reveal your proclivities by saying churning through task lists because the, some someone that has more the mindset of wanting to keep a, a real existing thing running and serving people's needs, they would say, I don't want to just think big floaty thoughts about something that could exist in the future. I want to deliver real value today by building production software and (laughs) shipping it to end customers, right? (laughs) For sure. And and so if you're someone who values the big floaty thoughts and you want this this big floaty thought that you've kind of tethered to earth to actually live long term, you got to find somebody who enjoys the other stuff to come and and, and pick it up and and take control. That seems like a a weak point in the process. Reminds me of tech transfer in, in universities. Tech transfer. I don't know if I know that. Concept. Ah, it's, it's how uh, many of the top tier research universities actually get most of their funding these days. Uh, my alma mater, the plurality of its funding comes from this. I think it's true of Stanford too. But but essentially, uh, the model is that professors are paid for mostly by public grants, NIH, NSF, things like that, uh, in the sciences anyway. And they produce mostly public goods. They publish papers and so on. But also, sometimes they file patents on those things when there are patentable things, or they do spin-off startups or their advisors to startups or something like that. And the university gets a cut. Uh, and so uh, a, a great deal of Stanford's wealth, for instance, comes from the patent which underlies Genentech uh, for recombinant DNA and uh, Google as, as well. Another piece of the funding spectrum 
is corporate R&D labs, which Xerox Park famously was. Bell Labs, another one I often use as, as inspiration. Now, that was quite unusual in that it was a corporate R&D lab for the largest monopoly business, I think, that has certainly ever been in information technology. But Andy, you had your your at least brief run at doing a little on the corporate R&D <laughs> side. How do you think that fits into this? It's really challenging. I spent a lot of time studying the, the players in this space and mostly came away with a pretty bleak perspective. My own work at Khan Academy was kind of weird because Khan Academy is a nonprofit. So the, the motivations are, are somewhat different there. But even just looking at the for-profit space, it's difficult for me to get excited about corporate research labs as, as an institutional model. Mm. Speaking to some of the people involved in setting up and tearing down Microsoft Research, that really was not terribly successful for the company and, and indeed was like successful in these other ways of creating a sink that could keep talent from going and starting startups in Seattle, for instance, <laughs> is like actually a useful and positive effect that made it worth funding for. Wow. You know, Bell Labs had it was this kind of this chaff to, to dodge antitrust litigation seems to be the, the prominent reason it, it got so much funding. It did actually generate a ton of value for the, the parent company. And Park, you know, I mean, there's this fumbling the future phrase that goes around. The fun thing is that Park actually was profitable for Xerox, just barely because of laser printers, not because of personal computers. Yeah, and Apple's corporate research uh, was really not successful. Um, I've been having difficulty learning as, as much as I would like to about Dolby. Uh, which does actually seem to be pretty successful. But another fairly successful example is Pixar. And one thing that I think really distinguishes Pixar's corporate research is that there's cutting-edge graphics research that goes on there, but it, it is very much in service of these creative films that are huge money generators. Well, maybe that creates the connection. And as always, one of the challenges is the disconnect between the uh, the mad scientists off thinking the big thoughts and the real-world problems that those can be applied to. and yeah, having the the graphics researchers need to turn around and produce an algorithm or even working code for the new movie that's coming out on a particular deadline and there's a lot of money at stake for maybe that creates some realness or or is a way to, as you said, tether the, the thought balloon to the earth a little bit. One of the challenges that seems to exist for all these labs that Pixar manages to avoid be the mechanism you just described, and it also existed at Khan Academy, which is a nonprofit, so it had you know, interestingly different funding issues, is, is just this um, this challenge of tech transition. So you know, the lab comes up with an idea. You know, we came up with the laser printer. We came up with the personal computer. We have the Alto. We have the Star, you know, whatever. And like we want to get it out in the world and have it be a major corporate strategic priority. This is often the point where things fall over because if if the research really is cutting edge, often it will mean at the highest level shifting the company's strategic objectives to really capitalize on that technology. It's difficult to find organizations that have done that consistently. You know, Pixar makes use of their research, but I think in general, capitalizing on really great like water rendering technology or whatever doesn't require shifting like, the highest level corporate strategy. Yeah, Ben Reinhardt has done some really interesting research on this topic in the context of DARPA. I highly recommend checking out his work. And one of the insights from the world of DARPA and uh, military or dual use technology transfer is that it's extremely dependent on thick social networks that are formed uh, largely because of DARPA's work. And this, I think, points to another gap or opportunity, which is the kind of institutional and community side, where if you have a place for people to congregate and to gather and to form social connections, it can really fertilize the creative work of the industry. And we saw this a little bit with Ink and Switch. You know, we had a very modest community effort. It was a Slack channel. We had some articles published. We would tweet some things. But even just that got all kinds of amazing people to come out of the woodwork and say, you know, I'm working on this too, or I have this idea, or what do you think about this, or how can I contribute? And I, I can only imagine if someone in, invested a lot more in something like that, 
you'd see correspondingly more results. I'd love to make that happen. It was briefly a, a kind of a high goal for the year until I realized that I couldn't really achieve the other things that seemed important if I pursued that. So one thing I observe is that these kind of community efforts do seem to be like the result of times of plenty. DARPA, uh, especially in its heady days with just like excessive funding, <laughs> is, is able to devote resources to this in, in a way that seems difficult. But I think DARPA is also an interesting example of how, again, the absolute amount needed is not that right. big. Like right. the number of people at the very core of DARPA is quite small. Yeah, maybe I'm just thinking too small here. The times of plenty point, I think, seems right, which is what we're talking about is investing in the future. Our particular niche and interest is this this tools for thought. Um, but in general, being willing to invest in the longer term, five years out, 10 years out and more. There's a few things that drive that. There's military is just a huge one because that's just always a existential question for a nation is also things like, and of course the space race with a lot of the stuff that led to the internet and a lot of those technologies was at its core connected to a sort of a military dominance or perception of that uh, between the world superpowers at the time. Uh, or you have something like Bell Labs, which as you said, you know, this antitrust thing, this, this huge monopoly with so much money to spend. And so it was sort of in their interest and, and government funding generally, the larger pool to, to draw from potentially and a willingness for longer time horizons. And corporate R&D labs are always tough because they're always, when times get a little tough and there's always the up and down, you're going to look a little shorter term. Of course, mm -hmm. the first thing to go is these dreamers that are, that are looking further out. And that's fair enough. I don't, I don't think that's a very pragmatic and reasonable choice. But then that that comes back to, well, is that a is that a way to to fund our future? And at least the evidence seems to be, despite some a few cases, a few exceptional cases like Park, uh, that that's not really a very sustainable or repeatable. I think it's interesting to look at HHMI's funding practices versus the NIH's funding practices of targeting specific researchers and trying to give them consistent funding over longer periods of time. Would I feel differently about spending a lot of time right now on like community organizing if I had something like an endowment? Um, I probably would. Mm. And it's weird because like I'm not I'm not really bleeding. I am in the red, but it, it, it's it's not so much that I don't want to do it because it feels like ultra ultra urgent to resolve that. It's more that there's a feeling of not being on steady ground. Yeah. I think the future is still I've written here. We've talked a lot about structural issues like funding and things like that. But a huge element is just the individual will and passion to see something change in the space. And I think Andy is a great example of that. Oh, you know, there's all kinds of currents that make that kind of work very challenging, but he's succeeded because of his will and, and talent and persistence. Uh, I would invite more people to just try to take that on. That's very kind. Thank you, Mark. Be like Andy. I like that. Well, if any of our listeners out there have feedback, feel free to reach out to us at MuseAppHQ on Twitter or hello at MuseApp.com by email. We always like to hear your reactions to anything we've talked about, and we'd like to hear your ideas for future episodes. Andy, thanks so much for uh, joining us today and talking about these areas of mutual interest. Thanks, y'all. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks, Andy.